What's up, everyone? It's your host, Thomas Kopelman, and this is The Long Game Podcast, a podcast about turning passions into purpose. In each episode, you'll hear highly motivated individuals share their stories of pursuing their passions, taking control of their destiny, and ultimately living their purpose, leaving you inspired to follow their lead. Thomas Kopelman is a financial advisor at RLS Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and his podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of RLS Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes. It should not be considered advice. Consult your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. everybody. This is your host, Thomas Kopelman of the Long Game Podcast, and today I'm joined by Alex Feinberg. Alex, thanks for joining me today, man. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Oh, I'm excited for this. So I guess I don't even think I've told you this. So I think that I was first exposed to you from Twitter from Zach Hommel. Is that how you say his Hummel. last name? Yeah. Hummel. So yeah. obviously his gym is in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I, I think... Dr. Jordan Burns, the chiropractor, somebody I know. So then I got to just down the line and end up becoming exposed to you. And I'm somebody that's very interested in fitness and a lot of the things that you teach. So I I just kind of saw your profile, saw all of the great info that you put out. And then I'm like, it's funny. I even was trying to tell my brother-in-law to buy your book or the cookbook because something that he really struggles with, he's like, I can do the working out, but I can't do the eating part. And so I'm like trying to, I was like, and oh, right yeah. now I'm in negotiations. I'm like, let's split it. I'll, I'll pay for half the book. I know it's something that I want you to do. It's going to make a big difference. So yeah, um, I just want to start out by saying thanks for the content that you put Absolutely. out. I mean, Twitter is this amazing place and you share so many things that are relevant and helpful to people right from the start. Yeah. Um, so before we get anywhere, will you give a little bit of background information on your story? Because yeah. I only know as much as I've been exposed to, but it seemed like you, you used to work for a billionaire and now you've kind of like spun off into this like health coaching, training, like yeah. cooking, all this type. So let's walk through that journey that you've been on. Well, it's been a long ride and a little bit wild. So uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and, uh, you know, like many kids, I wanted to be a professional athlete when I was younger. Uh, so I worked quite hard to get a baseball scholarship to Vanderbilt University while also you know, being disciplined enough to get basically straight A's in high school like many others do. Um, so I went to Vanderbilt on the baseball scholarship, ended up uh, starting there for four years. Didn't really have an idea of what I'd want to do after baseball because I just spent all of my time preparing for competition in the SEC, which is the top baseball conference and top many sport conference in the country. Um, I majored in economics because my dad is a lawyer and he was an economics major and it seemed like a general major that would not really force me to make any sort of decision about what I might want to do after baseball. And so it was more of a kick the can down the road decision uh, that funneled me into these Econ 101 classes. But, you know, it, it also, um, you know, forced me to develop frameworks in how I assess the world that have transferred into a lot of things that I do, including fitness. Um mm-hmm. After I graduated uh, as a senior, I got drafted by the Colorado Rockies, played two years in their minor league organization, saw the writing was on the wall that I wasn't going to uh, make it up to the big leagues anytime soon, and uh, ended up exploring uh, other career opportunities that I had never really looked into because I had no idea what I'd want to do outside of baseball. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people encouraged me to get into finance because I was an economics major and an athlete, and that profiles very well with a lot of people who were populating Wall Street at the time and still are. And... Uh, The challenge that I was going through at the time was because I was two years out of school, uh, I did not have access to campus interviews. I did not have access to uh, a lot of the resources that uh, a a lot of other people who are gunning for the same jobs Mm -hmm. had. I just didn't know how to speak the language of Wall Street, and I didn't really know how to conduct myself in these interviews. Um, And so, you know, I interviewed with Goldman and and some other banks. Um, Really, I was only interested in joining Goldman because at the time I was just like, I want to be the best. Goldman's the best. I want to join Goldman. Um, yeah, exactly. Cause I was more concerned about that when I was younger, uh, Goldman ended up turning me down for the role that I uh, applied to. They said they were looking for an experienced hire though. I would imagine if I interviewed better, they would have overlooked that, uh, shortcoming of mine. And, um, so I ended up, uh, you know, reaching out to some other contacts, one of whom was a donor to the Vanderbilt baseball team who put three, four, $500,000 to the program, uh, that fall. And, I knew that he was based in Hong Kong, and I knew if he was based in Hong Kong, he probably had investments in many international businesses, uh, you know, and had 
uh, contacts at Forex desks, which is what I was interested in at the time, you know, Forex trading. And so I reached out to him through his son, who uh, was connected to me on Facebook as a fan of our college baseball team. And uh, he and I got to, to speaking, you know, a few hours of conversation for like a few weeks. And he really liked the way I thought. He liked the way I interpreted human psychology as it applied to uh, consumer purchases and financial markets. And so he ended up extending a job offer to me to come work for him, um, which I thought, well, this, this guy's quite eccentric, but he's also, you know, like the second richest person that I've ever met. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and he has a background on Wall Street and he was uh, on the board of directors of a major investment bank in the 80s. So like he probably is well connected and can teach me some things that I might need to know. And so uh, I didn't I didn't know anybody in Asia at the time. I uh, I moved out there, um, you know, got to fly on his private jets around the U.S. and like experience the high life before going over to uh, to Hong Kong and being an analyst at his fund. And you know, working as an analyst in Hong Kong at the time was probably one of the most game changing experiences I've ever had in my life because it forced me to get out of the U.S. It forced me to uh, learn other cultures, not just as a study abroad student, but like working with people who would not take the same things for granted as I would as an American, who would uh, interpret certain um, mannerisms of mine differently than uh, different Americans would. And it also exposed me to the fact that a lot of high school kids that are educated outside the U.S. are a lot smarter and a lot more aware geopolitically um, especially if you're talking about some of the top international schools in Hong Kong and I would imagine Singapore as well. Um, and so, you know, working for this fund manager, he pointed me to the background of the Federal Reserve, which at the time was basically showcased through these like super conspiracy sounding videos on YouTube. But because I'm an open-minded person and uh, have a, a solid North Star and what, what, you know, if I assess someone to be good at, uh, investing and that person is telling me to read or consume content that I think is insane, I'm still going to do it because that person's better than me. And so I was disciplined enough to consume the content and uh, I actually did myself a favor and I read the Federal Reserve Act, which is like under 30 pages. You can read it over lunch. And the actual document that was produced by Congress um, actually substantiated a lot of the claims that were being made by these conspiracy videos. And so, you know, our investment thesis at the time was that central banks around the world are going to continue to try to bail out Wall Street. They're going to do that by keeping interest rates low. Low interest rates is going to mean cost of capital is going to be cheaper, which means more traders are going to be speculating on publicly traded securities. And so, you know, I'm always looking for efficient ways to do things. Um, one efficiency that I noticed in school is if you're in shape, uh, almost everything else is easier in life. And so I always made it a point, even while I was just an analyst at a hedge fund, to train every morning, uh, get my work in, and uh, you know look presentable in a suit, which uh, turned out to be fairly good for my next career move, which involved going to Silicon Valley. So I, I took the, um, the advice and investment thesis that we had at the hedge fund, and uh, I thought Silicon Valley was going to do really well back in 2011. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had entrepreneurial inclinations myself. And, uh, you know, I figured in a low interest rate environment, a lot of companies are going to be raising a lot of capital at inflated valuations. And I would very much want to position myself professionally to take advantage of that. I'd rather be working with the wind at my back than wind at my face. And if you study macroeconomics enough, you can probably figure out where those sectors in the economy are going to be. And so I moved back to the Bay Area where I grew up. Uh, stayed at home with my mom for a month or two while I was interviewing at uh, various tech companies. Um, got one job offer, but really wanted to work at Google um, and turned that job offer down. So I had no other job offers and I was just banking on, you know, convincing Google to let me into their office so I could talk my way into a job because this is literally like I had no idea how corporate hiring processes worked. I just thought, well, if I look presentable in a suit, speak well, speak articulately and directly, uh, they'll want to hire me. Yeah. And uh, that pro that sounded kind of arrogant to my parents, but it turned out to be exactly true. So I uh, asked a, a Vandy alum who was working at the Google San Francisco office a few times to uh, grab breakfast. By the third request, he invited me in to grab breakfast and introduced me to um, my would-be hiring manager and director. Uh, and then within about two minutes of speaking with them, I got much further than six weeks in the black hole of the uh, web-based application. Um, and so I, like, 
it sounds like just as a quick pause before you go, it sounds like you are somebody that knows what you want and you find the person that's going to help connect you to do it, which I think is a really valuable skill because from what I've experienced, there's a lot of people that know what they want, but they're not willing to go take that step of like, who can I find in my network or that I know that's going to help connect me and bridge the gap to give me this possibility to get where I want to go. Yeah. You know, I have, I'm quite stubborn and that's the other side of that, um, that double-edged sword, right? If I decide that I want something, um, I'm not going to let very many things get in my way. Just like if I decide I'm right, I'm not going to let very many things tell me I'm wrong. And, uh, and, you know, so that can, that will, uh, fill in why people probably correct, correctly say that I'm a stubborn person. I, I apply a lot of thought into why I think what I think. Um, and if I'm wrong, uh, I'm going to require a very strong argument to convince me why. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, so, you know, I ended up getting that job at Google. It was a sales role. I thought, um, you know, if I wanted to be an entrepreneur, sales was going to be something that was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, really valuable role for me because it forced me to understand human emotion a little bit better, specifically over the phone um, and in voice-based context. So I was really mm-hmm. surprised that first six months on the job, how my colleagues were able to decipher if uh, a client was going to buy or not, just from like internet. Like, I'm like, I was in the same conversation as you. How do you know they're not going to buy? And they just knew from like the vocal intonations. And so um, when my mind was open to various, you know, human expressions that indicated, you know, what people were actually thinking that were not actually spoken or written. Um, you know, that nonverbal communication awareness really took me to the next level as far as navigating a corporate environment. Um, I was a little bit frustrated in a sales role because I'm a pretty analytical guy and that really didn't matter or if anything, it might've hurt me. And, um, I noticed that a lot of the people who are making key decisions at Google didn't come through the sales track. They came through consulting if they were on the business side, um, or they were product managers. And so I uh, jockeyed to get into a consulting role. They told me that I didn't have the right uh, background. I didn't have the right consulting experience. Uh, I was able, able to overcome that with one team uh, through the submission of standardized test scores uh, and the, in an interview with that team, basically trying to convince them that I'm, I'm not dumb and I can help your team. And it's funny that you standardize test scores. Well, so, so the background on that is when I was frustrated in my sales role at Google, I applied to a couple of business schools and, uh, to, to apply to business schools, you have to, you know, take a GMAT scored, scored really well on the GMAT. And so I had just included it on my resume because I, I kind of told myself that business school really doesn't add much value to an employer other than a signal that somebody might be intelligent or something like that. It's more of a network based thing. So if I wanted to boost my um, effective salary at, at, a, at an employer, I thought, well, I will produce t- for you uh, a GMAT score that would be sufficient to get into a top business school. And then you can make the assessment yourself, whether you think I'm worth an uh, MBA wage or not. Um, mm-hmm. That didn't work as far as getting a wage bump at Google, but mm-hmm. it, did, it did help me get a, a job offer uh, from the strategy team that I worked on for a couple of years. Um, and then, you know, Continued working out the entire time I was there, uh, met uh, another director who was also, you know, into training in the morning, uh, baseball fan, and uh, his team was doing some pretty cool things, working with sports partners, working with fitness partners, you know, like Fitbit, ESPN, stuff like that. And he asked me if I wanted to join his team and lead uh, Google search integrations uh, for those particular segments. And so I ended up doing that for a couple of years, still kept training, but was frustrated the entire time because... I felt like my skills were not recognized and not ever going to be recognized in a corporate environment. You know, at best I could find a business development role, which did in fact help tap into my analytical and sales skills uh, at once. So that was good. But all the things that I was doing from a training standpoint didn't really help me at all. Um, And by the time I was done at Google, I had, made some adjustments in my training, made some adjustments in my eating. And I noticed that the experience that I had uh, losing fat, staying lean was substantially easier than I had ever thought that it would be and substantially easier than it was for me when I was fatter uh, several years before figuring these things out. And so as I was leaving Google in um, early 2018, which has kind of coincided with the bull run in the crypto markets, um, I decided that I wanted to work in crypto 
But I also decided that I wanted to help people learn these shortcuts that I found because, you know, it's a problem that over 100 million Americans have being overweight, being pre-diabetic, mm -hmm. obese. Um, and it's a problem that I figured out how to easily solve, at least for me and similarly situated individuals. So, you know, 2018 rolls around and uh, I'm leaving Google, I'm joining the crypto space. And, you know, one thing that's interesting about crypto, especially then, but probably still now, is it attracts a lot of entrepreneurial minded people. And so from getting outside of a corporate environment to getting into an entrepreneurial environment, um, I, you know, developed more creativity, actually. I, ha I didn't realize that I had the creativity that I had until I left the corporate environment. And I was always waiting at Google for that entrepreneurial idea that never came after for six years. It just didn't come. And uh, when I was out on my own, um, not at the mothership, um, I, uh, you know, I decided that I wanted to share a lot of the uh, shortcuts that I'd essentially found and made my fitness journey a lot easier than it had been uh, in the beginning and than it is for most people. And so I struggled in 2018. You know, I started with maybe a couple hundred followers on Twitter, ended the year with like 300, uh, I was basically tweeting to a wall. And I asked myself, you know, if you think this is important and you think you have value to add, you should actually like learn from people who've done it better than you. And so Ed Lattimore was selling his book on Twitter growth at the time. I bought that in December, 2018, created a new Twitter account in 2019 and started just posting a lot on that new account in 2019 with the understanding that it was gonna be like a lot of training programs where it's hard in the beginning. Uh, in, in the case of Twitter, it's hard because you don't have that dopamine feedback from getting good posts go viral because nobody's following you. Um, but if you push through that initial phase, eventually uh, you, will, you will see the light. And so, you know, I had okay growth, probably took me about six months to get to a thousand followers I was pretty pumped about that when that happened. And uh, Bobby Dino was um, putting on an event in Napa, uh, August, 2019. Napa was about an hour, hour 15 away from my apartment in San Francisco. And I didn't really want to drive an hour and 15 minutes, had a lot of things to do. Um, but I asked myself, you know, if this is something that you take seriously, you should go. And so I did go, um, went with my girlfriend at the time, met Alexander Cortez. Uh, his girlfriend, Preeti Cassiretti, though she doesn't remember meeting, meeting me then, uh, Ed Lattimore. Uh, so like a lot of, you know, bigger accounts than mine were there and, uh, you know, immediately got along with everybody. Uh, Alexander started retweeting my stuff. And so that really helped my account start growing from 1,000 to 5,000 followers. By the time I got to 5,000 followers, people were asking me more proactively for like, do you have a website? Where can I get more of your content? And I told myself, you know, once I get to 5,000 followers, I'll get an email list. Um, once I get my email list up to 1,000 followers, maybe I'll release a, a, a content around it. But the demand for the content was just there already. And so I decided that, like, what are you waiting for? Just go release it. And I just took a weekend. I did a brain dump for, like, this is how I eat. And this is, like, this is all of the shortcuts that I take that I noticed how to make it easier um, in a sustainable way that's actually really enjoyable. And so I wrote that book in like five hours, sent it to a, a publisher or a, uh, uh, editor in, uh, India. And the editor came back some revisions, you know, spent a few more hours making sure it looked nice. And then I first, I released my product kind of thinking, you know, I'll be happy if I just make my production cost back, cost me a few hundred bucks. I know it's hard to sell things online. I just want this information to be out there because I think it's incredibly valuable. So I will, and I, I would have given it away for free if I thought people would have valued it. Um, but I know that people value things that they pay for. So I put, uh, at the time seemed like a pretty high price. Um, and since gone up because the demand is there, but, um, it ended up selling like the first day I ended up selling like a thousand dollars or something of it. I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. Um, let me see how much I can get from this. And, uh, you know, so I kept pushing that for a couple months. People were asking, yeah, man, you're posting all these like great, uh, foods, you know, do you have a recipe book? Okay. Yeah. Uh, customers want recipes. I'll release a recipe book, um, release my recipe book, January, 2020. And then COVID came in, uh, in March of 2020. And, and when that happened, uh, I knew that, you know, I was still working my job. I still am working my job at, at my crypto exchange. Um, but I also knew that fitness is, is, and was, and will be a big part of my life. And a big part of my diet is eating a lot of meat and lifting weights. 
And I knew that if, um, if I stayed in San Francisco, the opportunity for me to continue to eat meat would be compromised because the last time I was at a Whole Foods there, everything was missing from the shelves because everybody was hoarding it. And um, you know, I, I knew there was a possibility that gyms would get shut down too. And so I ended up fleeing San Francisco last March, uh, went up to my mom's place in Idaho, thought I'd only be there for several weeks, bought a home gym just in case I needed it, had a two month return policy. Um, they ended up closing gyms and nothing was opening up obviously. And so I just ended up keeping that home gym um, and using that time to travel more because all my income was remote. And so, you know, spent some time with Zach Homel, um, got some good uh, hangout time with him, but then also good account growth from interacting with him more. And, you know, by Q3 of last year, sort of realized that, you know, it does seem that I can generate recurring revenue around these products that I'm releasing rather than just have like a one-off, um, you know, good month or something like that. Like I'm, I'm consistently getting more followers who are interested in buying my content. So let me just see how this goes. And so uh, had a good July, had a good August, had a good September. And, you know, I, I would always tell myself, you know, if I hit these benchmarks, then that's good enough. I should go bet on it. And every time I hit those benchmarks, I'm like, eh, I don't know. Like I'm, I like getting paid a consistent salary. So, you know, right now I'm getting paid uh, a consistent salary through my main job, but then also making pretty decent money um, with my fitness stuff online. And uh, that's allowed me to kind of move and live wherever I want. And that's taken me to Austin, Texas most recently. Yeah, no, I find that super interesting. I think that you made a couple really cool points there that you saw the difference of how your eating impacted your life and your training. And you thought, this makes an impact on me. It's got to make an impact on other people around me. Why don't I create a side hustle or you know some business where I feel good about what I'm doing because it impacted my life, but I also see that there's a market for it. But then as you developed your audience, you released that, you listened to your audience to figure out what was the next thing they needed. Maybe it's the cookbook, maybe it's the workout program. And what I think is cool is I think I followed you for maybe a little over a year. You see that evolution in the way that you do it. But then I feel like from the outside in, what people who don't own a business understand, what they don't understand is like you promoting your product is you promoting something that you feel like is going to make a difference and impact other people. And because you feel that way, you're obligated to go out and have as many people see this as possible because of the life, the difference that you can make in those people's lives. And I think that's yeah. like a really cool evolution of where you started to where you were at. And it's kind of a combination of everything that you learned, but also like you're, I had no idea you were working another full-time job. I thought this was your business that entire time because you still are always there. You're always tweeting. You're always yep. you know, that new sale that comes out. You're sharing stories, emails, like you're uh -huh. hustling. And I think it's really cool because you're going to give yourself that opportunity that if you want this to be your full job, you can. If you want both, you can. And you're giving yourself flexibility and options down and later on in your life to pursue whatever you want to pursue. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of aligns with a lot of the shortcuts that I look for in life because uh, there were a lot of platforms that I could have focused on. And Twitter just seemed like the easiest because, um, I was always eating good food, so I might as well take a picture of it and talk about it. Uh, I was always training, so you know I might as well, you know, put clips of it, uh, which can be applied to Instagram too. But you know, for the for the purposes of short content, Twitter's fine. And so um, it didn't actually require a ton of extra effort in the beginning. It was just documenting the things that I do, which I think is something Gary V talks about, even though I don't follow the guy. Um, and so it it was very much, you know, it wasn't me trying to force a square peg into a round hole, which I had been trying for the years prior. It was more, oh, I stumbled across something that I think is a gold mine. I'm, in, I'm like aware enough to realize how much the low effort side and delicious food side would benefit a lot of people because most people just believe the things that I thought were true five years ago seven years ago about uh, calorie consumption, what you need to do to have abs. And, you know, those were things that I was never willing to do. And it just so happens that I developed the same or better physique as the people who do those things with like a third of the effort. And so it was just obvious to me that, you know, this is a valuable product that more people need to know about. I still think more people need to know about it. I think I should have 2 million followers, not 20,000, because there's 110 million Americans who are diabetic or pre-diabetic. 
yeah. right? We have 42% adult obesity rate. It's like, this is a, a catastrophic problem that we face as a society. I have a very viable solution that's worked for many, many people. Um, and it, it, you know, I view it as a responsibility of mine to get the information out there. And I view it as, as uh, a failure of mine if I can't because of how large that problem is. Yeah, quick question for you. So when you go in and you, know, you work with other individuals, is this something where like you share a lot of this information from Twitter and videos, like here's actually how you go do it, but then you realize that most people can't? Or do you more so take the approach of like, hey, I have these secrets, come work with me, and then I share them with you? What has been your approach? Um, probably some combination of the two. Like I'm pretty open with people and calls, whatever, you know, if they're thinking about signing up, I share as much as I can. Um, because even if I told you everything that I do in 30 minutes, you're not going to retain it all. Um, you're also good. You're also going to um, need to prioritize things because you might not do all of it. Right. And so that, that requires um, a better understanding of the content than simply do all of this and it will work. I understand my program well enough to where if you tell me, hey, I only have enough time to do 20% of it, I'll say, okay, pick this 20%. That's going to be the best bang for your buck. So pick this 60%. You have the ability to make it more specific to the person and make changes, yeah. make them accountable and make tweaks as life happens. Same thing as me as a financial advisor. I can give everybody all the information, but for them to actually go out, carry it out, make changes, update it, you know, market drops, live through it, it it's hard. So as we talk about this a little bit, you know, just for, you know, my audience, if you had to distill down, like, I don't want you to be like, Hey, share all your secrets. But if there was a couple things that everybody could go do that would make a large impact on them, even though I know a large, large amount of people won't, you know, what would you go tell millennials in their late twenties, thirties, early forties? Like here are some things that you could go do that are going to make a significant impact overall health, look, you know, confidence, things that you coach on. Keep competing at something. Uh, is probably the number one thing because what corporations will want to do when they get you out of, out of school is uh, steer all of your focus towards achieving your quarterly goals that you have with them. And the more they can do that, the more profits they make off of you. And I was very resistant uh, at the time to allow a third party to be my source of happiness um, because I knew how dangerous that was when I played baseball is I was always concerned with what does my coach think? What does my coach think? And that just wasn't helpful. I knew that I, if I was to live life, um, with my own happiness and sense of self-worth contingent on the review of a sometimes unstable third party, which a corporation or crazy coach can be, um, that's basically a recipe for disaster and insanity. And so I knew that, I was not going to be corporately competitive. You know, I wasn't going to like not do anything and get fired, but I just wasn't going to run the rat race. Um, I, I would let everybody, all my peers, you can run the rat race. If you guys want to get promoted, you go do it. But I'm going to do my thing. Um, I realized when I was at Google, they were paying me enough as an entry-level worker that I could save money every month and I wasn't going to starve. Um, and if they wanted to pay me more through promotions, that's fine too. But it wasn't something that I was going to let uh, pull my strings as a puppet, as a lot of my colleagues did. Guess what? I still got promoted twice when I was there. Uh, maybe I would have gotten promoted three times if I was like really gunning for it, but I just didn't care that much. And um, what I also forced myself to do was was maintain competitiveness with myself, because if you lose, like I really believe that men especially need to compete, and if you put them in a corporate environment long enough where the goals just seem so disconnected from things they actually care about, then they develop like a learned helplessness and, and they lose that, you know, that sense for blood that, uh, you know, if you want to put it, uh, you know, in, in more like hyperbolic terms, you need to have if you want to be successful in a lot of endeavors. And so I, every time I went to the gym, I told myself that if I'm not able to push myself, I will live life subordinated to someone else. I need to be the one who's pushing myself harder than everybody else in my environment, or I will end up living life at the mercy of others. 
which is an outcome that I very much wanted to avoid in my 20s and very much want to avoid still in my 30s. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's a really good point there. And I think I like the point that you didn't make it that you have to compete with anybody else. Really, at the end of the day is that's part of goals. You know, you have fitness goals and finance goals and self-growth goals and whatever it is. You are, it's okay to compete with yourself, but you need to have something that you're trying to push towards, attain and reach. And you're saying corporate culture makes it a little bit harder. Sure, you can see that next position, but you become so engraved that that's your only definition of success if you only tie it towards that job that you might not even even have a chance at. It might be complete politics. It might be somebody yeah. whose dad is above you and you can't control it. But I think this, this is also a really great point that you can apply to anything. Like if you put your happiness in any decision or anything that isn't related to something that you can control, you're probably always going to be chasing that. And you're, ne yeah. you might, you're probably never going to get there either. Yeah, that's very true. A lot of people don't realize that until they hit 60 and then they kind of figure it out then. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, so, um, so one of them, compete with yourself it, or always have something that you're working towards. What else? Um, understand that your employer is temporary. Um, always work on developing a transferable skill set. And so, especially at a large company where um, the things that you need to develop to move up at a large company tend to be company specific, uh, the higher you go up as well. And so that was something that I noticed, um, you know, once you start making $250,000 a year at, at Google or maybe other tech companies, the, the skills that are required to jump from 250 to 300 to 350 are basically understanding internal politics, which has very little marketability externally. And so because I was always interested in doing my own thing, I was always interested in having control over my career, control over my income, I just wasn't interested in developing non-transferable skills. And so that also delayed my promotions um, a little bit because I was only concerned with developing skills that I could monetize on the back end from somebody else. Yeah, okay, if you want me to do some dumb stuff for like an hour or two hours a day, I can do that, but I'm not spending my entire day working on something that I can't sell to somebody else for a higher price. awesome. I think that that's a huge plug for personal branding. I think it's really easy, you know, Indianapolis, a lot of people work at Eli Lilly or Salesforce or whatever. And I don't believe there's anything wrong with going there, working, you know, wanting to work your way up. But at the same time, like, why not work on things to develop your personal brand? Why not talk about things that you're sharing, build an audience on Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever it is, because you become more marketable as soon as you expand this network, because you're impacting people beyond just what your employer is having you do. And I think that that's something that it isn't taught enough. Like, you know, you go through college, develop your resume, go for the job that's the best for the resume that has the largest name, but then you're kind of like stuck there. You know, maybe you go yeah. work in corporate and then what you can do is you can go somewhere else or then you could step back, start a business, develop a brand, but you're really kind of taking a huge step back to get back to where you were versus yeah. pursue that earlier. And you, you started developing your brand and putting out the content before you even realized I'm going to commoditize this and make this into, you know, a business. You just tested yeah. to see if it was viable and share the information that you learned and the information that was helpful for you. And you hoped that you would naturally bring in people that were similar to you that wanted to think the same way, but they didn't have the answers. Yeah. And, you know, I think to illuminate some of the fears that other people have is, you know, people would be concerned is what if people don't like my products? What if they judge me? I was worried about that when I launched my first ebook. You know, I'm like, what if people think it's crap? But, you know, the first day I'm getting all this commentary, like, this is amazing. This is like the best thing I've ever read. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. So they liked it. Good. I think that's a really good point because I think that ties into a little bit of imposter syndrome, which is yeah. like, you know, we all, you're a high performer. I'm a high performer athletes. Like, we were constantly, we grew up constantly judged on performance. And mm -hmm. so as we go on, that that's a big thing, but also like because of that competitive nature that we have, like you wanna make sure that that book is the best. It, it's not that you just did this because it's a quick way to make money. You wanted to put it out, you wanted to help people, but sometimes it's easy to forget that like the things that we know the most about 
you're like, oh, this is so basic. Like everybody should know that you should eat 18 dominant meals and that you should train heavy and lift multiple body parts in one day. But that doesn't mean anybody else thinks that's basic knowledge. And and I see that every day in finance, you know, it might, all these things might seem super simple to me. And then I come in, I feel like I'm gave the most basic plan to somebody because they're just starting out and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so helpful. I didn't even know any of this stuff. And now I actually have direction. I feel great. And I think at times we just only need to take take a step back and realize that like your knowledge base is probably not similar to anybody else that you're going to work with, because if they were, they probably wouldn't be turning to you for help anyways. Like they, they already have that part covered. They'll go look to find the information that they don't have in some other, you know, field. And, and also, you know, people who are hesitant to start don't properly appreciate the value of condensing complexity and making it simple for somebody else because um, the training plan that I do is a little bit different than what most uh, training plans would be. The recipes, they, they are better, right? They do work very well. Can you find similar ones online? Yeah, they're not going to have the, the same macro proportions, but if you understand macro proportions, you can modify free recipes that you find online. Um, and so, you know, a timid person might ask, why would you even release these products if free versions are available online. And the reason is because there's so much information out there that nobody even has enough time to sort through what's viable and what's not. So if all I do is, and and I didn't do this with my recipe book, but I'm saying if all I did was take other people's recipe books and say, that's a good one. That's a good one. I don't like that one. I like that one. I don't like that one. I like that one. Okay, guys, this is what I think is is valuable people understand my approach to fitness. And so they will pay essentially for my ratings and approvals of other people's content, uh, like an endorsement almost. And so, uh, you know, don't ever discount the value of understanding something well enough that you can take other people's complex offerings and simplify it for a new audience. I think that's literally an amazing point because the internet is full of information. You could learn anything you possibly could want. Like I could learn everything to become a doctor solely through the internet. Am I going to do that? No. And I think at times people, business owners, you know, service business, what we do is we try to make everything complex to make it seem like, look at all this stuff that we know and everything. But at the end of the day, that's not what people want. Like with my clients, every single financial plan I do is one page because I took all of this information from the that exists in finance, all the information that's relevant to you. And I distilled it down to a one page actionable plan that you can just go do and then live your life. Like people aren't really looking for complexity. They're looking for action and simplicity that they can just go do. And and with finance or not finance with fitness, most people are like, it is so hard to get in shape. It is so hard to lose weight. It's so hard to build muscle. And, And that's just what they think. And then they actually get the idea of here's how you go do it. And they're like, wow, I could have been doing this my whole life. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, the educational system trains people to think like that. And mm-hmm. so if you think about like what I think would be a good tweet or what I think would be a good, a good um, product to sell uh, would probably not be considered good products in uh, Vanderbilt University if I were to submit them um, to a professor who is grading them. Why? Uh, my products have no citations. I don't care. Right? People know that if they want to go read medical studies, they can go find them. And what I'm putting in there is my interpretation of a combination of medical studies and, you know, my experience and the experience of others that I'm surrounded by. And so it doesn't check the box as far as, oh, we're enough sources cited. No. Um, My diet book is, is 20 pages with pictures, 12 probably without pictures. So, you know, most uh, English professors in school want people writing more, write a 10 page paper on this, write a 20 page paper on this. And so, in school, you're rewarded for both length and complexity, where in the real world, you're rewarded for brevity and simplicity. And a lot of people who are really good at, um, at the former cannot even see the world through the lens of the latter, right? They, don't, they just get frustrated because the thing that they believe themselves to be really good at isn't rewarded. And they think, oh, this is just dumb. It's not for me. It's like, well, yeah, it's not for you the way you've developed yourself now, but you need to be flexible uh, enough and have enough pain tolerance to redefine and reassess the game that you're playing. Most people cannot do that. They learn the rules to one game when they're 17 
They maybe modify them a little bit when they're 21. Maybe they modify them a little bit when they're 25, but for the most part, they're playing the same, uh, the same game by the same rules, even when the game's changed. And so, you know, if you want to be successful, you need to kind of constantly ask yourself, what game am I playing? And then what's the most effective way to play that game, not the other game? No, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. That's really thought out. And I think what you're getting at is really that school teaches us how to memorize facts and put them down in a test. What you're talking about is people need to learn how to think and make decisions for themselves and live the life that they really want and pursue the things that they want, which I think is honestly like a really, a really good point. So I, I guess to kind of transition past that, like as you think about this journey that you've been on, because you've been all over the place and, and not even, I'm not saying that in like a bad way, like you've been, you went from baseball to, you know, across the world to coming back, like you've done all of these things. As you look back, is there anything that you would change about the journey that you've been on? Would you, you know, maybe start tweeting earlier? You know, what, what would, you know, any changes? Well, I can't. So I also do my best to, uh, to try not to dwell on things that can't be fixed. And so I have yet to figure out how to roll back time. Um, do I wish I started sharing a lot of my stuff earlier? Yeah, but I didn't know about it at the time. I just didn't know that this was a thing. And so as much as, yeah, I wish I documented all the stuff that I was doing in my late 20s because that was really marketable too. You know, oh, well, I guess I can just market what I have now. And the cool thing about fitness um, and finance too, to a, a latter extent, is the content's recurring, right? So my body at 34 is not the same as my body at 24. My body at 44 is not gonna be the same as my body at 34. And other people are gonna be going through similar challenges, right? So like, even if 10 years from now, I wanna to be in the fitness space, but my body doesn't look as good with my shirt off, that's okay. Because number one, people won't expect it to look as good when I'm 44 versus 34. And number two, um, in social media, the ability to share your shortcomings and how you get around them is rewarded better than previous economies where you have to you know, position yourself as all-knowing all the time and perfect. And so once you can start monetizing imperfection and you realize that your customers have a lot more imperfections than perfections, then you don't have to worry about um, you know, kind of moderated declines as long as you're able to talk through, okay, you know, I'm older now, my joints don't work as well. So this is what I'm doing with my training um, in my 40s that I didn't do in my 30s. This is what I'm doing with in my 30s that I wasn't doing in my 20s. This is what you need to work at, watch out for if you made the mistake that I did. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of how I look at it. Yeah, I think that's really an interesting viewpoint of like, yeah, you're putting out a ton of information now about the journey that you're on, the age that you're at helping those people. But as you evolve, you're going to face new problems that you can now learn about that then you can go and teach about. So all of a sudden, Hey, here's what to do in your fifties just to, you know, feel like you're in your thirties, you know, here are the things that I did and you make that very applicable, which I think is really cool. And I totally get your point of like, you know, you, you can't go back in time. So what's the point of feeling regret? Totally get that. But I like the, the point of like, of course I would have started sooner because I think it's good for people to hear that. Like if every single person that I'm going to talk to that has built this amazing, successful life and business and whatever, if every single one of them is like, I, I had these ideas in my head and I thought about putting them out there for years and I never, and I, I just did it too late. Well, not even too late. I just, I wish I would have done it sooner. Then hopefully that'll hit home to listeners of like, Hey, if you have this idea or you want to share things, just do it. Like there is no shame in it. Like the, the world that we live in is a creator economy. Like people want to learn from other people. And like what you said is like, it's relatable to not be perfect. Like, like obviously everybody sees all your pictures. Like you have like perfect abs, you have all this stuff, like super, super great. But then there's also like, if you share a story of like, here's somewhere where I failed, like, you know, I thought this was mm -hmm. working, blah, blah, did this, learn from it. Boom that becomes so much more relatable to a person because they're like, I felt that I've been there. You know, I want to learn from somebody and how they pivoted in that same time. And I, I think that I, I love that the world is changing to be less about perfect and, and to be more about relatable. And I know it's not like fully yeah. there, but like the more that we can create and share our stories and people can be more connected to individuals than these massive brands, the more that I think that's going to change, which hopefully is a better thing for society in the long run. Yeah, but then also, you know, institutions change too. So you look at how the how institutional marketing has shifted with the ad, uh, advent of social media, and all these uh, consumer brands are positioning themselves the same way, right? 
So the game is constantly changing and the wolves will always figure out how to wear sheep's clothing. Um, but you know, now the opportunity does seem to be on the social side um, where you are rewarded for your ability to communicate. Uh, like we talked about earlier, if you can share your information in one page, that's easier to communicate than 10. If you can share it without citations, that's easier to communicate than with citations. So yeah, I mean, all things are true. No, that makes sense. So a couple questions to kind of wrap it up. So obviously you're a fitness person, you know, you work out, you eat healthy, you go on walks, whatever. You know, if, if you had to talk about a couple things that you need to function at your best, what would those be? Sleep, uh, quality, protein dominant food, and water. It's probably it. Okay. How many hours do yeah. you go for a sleep a night? I mean, I like to get seven. Uh, realistically, I probably get six. I should get more. Um, I'm not good at sleeping, but um, I know that when I sleep seven hours or more, I feel really good. So, you take melatonin? Yeah. Sometimes. Okay, I didn't know if you had like an opinion of maybe melatonin's bad or not. I take melatonin quite a bit because I have a hard time falling asleep, but. Yeah, you know, I try not to be dependent on too many things. And so I do take it, but I try to take it sparingly. Okay. So what's the best financial decision you've ever made? I bought a bunch of Bitcoin last year. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't even... Uh, you know, the, the blur, the blurred line between fitness and finance is, exists for me. And I think it's going to exist a lot more for other people. So, you know, you can talk about what's the best financial decision. The best financial decision, decision can also be a health decision, right? I noticed when I was working at Google, a lot of the executives who were making over $400,000 a year did it at the expense of their health. Their hair was thinning. Their, uh, their skin was not very vibrant. Um, they, their body composition was declining. Um, at a rate that was not expected uh, at their age based on how I knew them two years pre previously. And I always approach jobs uh, understanding that I am, <clears throat> yeah, although I'm an employee, I'm a, a vendor of services. That's what I am. I run a service vending business. The service is my services. And so if my employer is asking for a um, a support level, if he's asking for a premium support level, but he's only willing to pay um, you know, entry rate uh, services, he is not going to get a premium support level. He's going to get the support level that he's paying for. And so this is one, uh, you know, one way I was able to consistently justify carving out the time that I did to eat and cook and train um, was because I was not and am not willing to depreciate my body for the benefit of shareholders of a company that's employing me makes so much sense. And I think it's, I think that's a really good point because if you're going to have to work 120 hour weeks, never be able to eat healthy because you don't have time to work out, all it's going to end up doing is when you're 50, you're going to spend so much of that money on your health and trying to get your health back. And so it's like at that expense, is it really worth it? And, and most of those right. people too, like they suffer relationship wise too, like family wise, yeah. like they're, they're not able to be present because everything work comes first. And again, we got to remember that like work is a part of life and we all want to, you know, it makes you feel good and you feel smart, but at the end of the day, work's part of life. Like the goal is to live life and work to fund your life, not like life is your work. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, totally. Last question. Um, what is one thing that you wish more people asked you? And I know it's kind of a deep question, but is there something that you wish more people asked you that you feel like if they asked me this, I could share this, which is the, the thing that I know the most about that I can impact the most amount of people. Um, you know, Zach Homel says that I'm the best at finding shortcuts mm -hmm. uh, for anybody that he's found. And so uh, when people get to know you, they get to know you for one thing typically, and yeah. then they're surprised that you're capable of doing more than that one thing. What I wish people realized and, you know, more starting to is that um, I entered this fitness thing by accident. Right. I, I did not, I never intended to be a fitness influencer. I just wanted to be in good shape. Um, I became a fitness influencer because I'm good at finding shortcuts. Um, and I was able to train consistently because I'm good at finding neural shortcuts that allow me to overcome high levels of pain for short periods of time. Um, and I'm able to break up, you know, complex work into smaller bites that I can digest um, and, and, you know, essentially tolerate pain that other people can't, not because they lack the pain tolerance, but because they lack 
the mental acuity to break it up into uh, smaller portions that they can navigate through. And so, you know, I think um, as much as I really enjoy talking about fitness and training and diet, um, shortcuts problem solving is actually, you know, what I really like talking about. Uh, and it actually pays me a little bit better when I do consult on it um, through the, the hedge funds that, that pay me to do that. Basically, you're efficient. You're able to find efficiencies. And, you know, there's always the saying, I think it was like Steve Jobs, that he never hires the smartest people. He hires the people that can get the job done the quickest or lazy people because they learn how to be efficient. Yeah. And I can totally relate to that. Yes. Um, learn from lazy people. Lazy people, lazy successful people are smarter than hardworking successful people because they're able to get the same impact with less effort, which means they're connecting dots in ways that the harder working people are not. <clears throat> provided that they're doing it legally. And, um, and so you should learn from them because they're actually ahead of the people who are outworking them. Um, but in a corporate environment, they won't always be uh, put on a pedestal because the corporation just wants you working harder and more and more and more when you should really learn from the people who are able to, to produce more with less effort. I mean, that honestly makes a lot of sense. I think that's really good advice to, to kind of end this podcast. So I really appreciate you coming on. Before we go, will you share kind of the best places to engage with you and kind of learn from your content? Because, I mean, you put a lot of time into it, so I want to help push more. Yeah, people. I mean, Twitter's the, Twitter's the best. Uh, Alex Feinberg one. I'm not sure if my handle is going to be present on this, but uh, F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G or Instagram, same handle, Alex Feinberg one. Uh, try to create content daily. Uh, you can ping me there. My DMs are open. Perfect. I'll link to it. Um, but thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. And I think, thank you to everybody for staying on and listening. I felt like this was a really good use of, a, of our time. And I feel like you shared completely different things than anybody else that I had on. So thank you. I really appreciate good. it. You bet. Thanks for having me.